like to welcome everyone here tonight. <clears throat> this is our kind of our Easter Christmas <laughs> occasion. Everybody get, comes in uh, in a celebratory mood. It's kind of fun. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll have the Dharma talk and then we'll uh, have the refuges and precepts <clears throat> right after that. But uh, we've just finished the uh, holiday season and uh, it's useful, I think, to uh, sort of look at uh, what's the basis of the Buddhist doctrine within all of this gift giving and celebration. So I'd like to uh, kind of get to the essence of uh, the tradition on these talks, these first uh, January talks. <clears throat> and so tonight I'd like to talk about uh, sila, samadhi, and panya. And I'd like to start off uh, by just telling you the Buddhist story of an old man who was too feeble to go to the Buddha himself. So he sent his younger younger grandchild to the Buddha to um, ask the essence of the Buddha's teaching. And uh, so he sent the grandchild off and the grandchild goes to the Buddha and he says, uh, Sir, can you give me the essence of the teaching for my grandfather? And the Buddha says, I teach sila or I teach ethical conduct. These are Pali words, but I'll explain what they mean. I teach ethical conduct. And so the young boy goes back to the man and the man says, oh, that's interesting. Go and see if he teaches anything else. So the second time he goes and uh, he asks the Buddha and the Buddha says, yes, I do teach something else. I teach samadhi, stability of mind or mental harmony. And so the boy goes back to the grandfather and repeats what the Buddha said. And the, Buddha, and the grandfather says, oh, that sounds like good teaching. Go and see if he teaches Something else. These things always happen in threes. I don't, don't ask me why. So for the third time he goes and uh, asks the Buddha for the essence of his teaching. And the Buddha says, yes, I also teach panya, wisdom. Clear seeing. Seeing what life really is free of distortion. And so the son returns and the grandfather is convinced that this is the true and rightful teaching. And as those stories go, was enlightened through his grandson's delivery. So far, I don't see any. <laughs> but we'll keep going. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to just talk about these three things, not as separate, um, as separate uh, teachings, but rather as really a, a single body of teachings. And I love it because you can hear as I walk through the definitions of each and also a little about them, you will hear the other two in each of them are almost like a hologram, 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 hologram. I need a translator for English. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and you can, so you can see the perspective of each in every one of them. And also I want to, get a sense, because I think this is so vital, especially to urban Buddhists like ourselves, uh, the rootedness that each of these hold. They hold a, a groundedness. They hold a, um, a strength, a confidence, an assurance 
And I love it because uh, when each one is both the absolute confidence and empowerment of what is seen, the clarity of what is seen, as well as, and this is a beautiful balance, the uh, heartfelt qualities of sensitivity, flow, yielding, and allowance. So that each one is not a brittle, um, a, a brittle barrier, but it has enormous strength within its fluidity, within its flow. You might say it's the power of love that few of us really understand because really what these three words are pointing to is the essence of love, which we'll see in just a moment. But most of us, when we start our meditations, we just, you know, begin to approach mindfulness. We begin to, it's, a, it's like this wonder drug that we assume. And we begin to just feel our way with a depth and sensitivity into areas of life that we haven't touched before. And some are very novel and new and very, uh, hold a lot of revelation. And what we find as we move into life, touching it almost in a braille system, is that the textures of life begin to be felt and we get affected by what it is that we do feel. And we also get very sensitive to our pain and the pain of others. And this, you might say that the prescription for that sense of ethics and gentle perseverance and confidence comes in learning how to resolve our painful issues. To learning how to look at our pain and to see see it in a way that brings a resolution rather than a perpetuation, which is how most of us who are untrained respond to our pain with more reactivity, further entrenchment, further conditioning, hardening our stance. And the beauty of this as it begins to pierce the different layers through just that gentle caress, a gentle touch of mindfulness, that first time we actually felt something on its own, on its own, for what it really was, for what it really is. And it's almost like a a call, and I I use this word more and more because I feel it so deeply, a call of the wild. It's almost like we have been entrapped in life up until this time in a kind of blindness, uh, imperceptible uh, that we, I mean, it wasn't an intentional blindness, but it was a kind of way that we held life that we were so far backed away, so distant from it that we couldn't feel through it. We didn't see its permeability. We didn't feel how we could have access to it. And so the, the technique begins to allow us to draw much closer to the living experience. And when we do so, we draw much closer to the source and origins of our pain. And rightly so, we begin to perceive pain in others with the same sensitivity that we perceive our own. But perceiving the pain in ourselves, there's a a confidence that we build as we move and develop a uh, the begin to decode how this pain uh, occurs and what happens uh, that we uh, that the pain is self-inflicted 
there's a confidence that grows in our ability to hand, handle virtually any situation that occurs at all. Any mind state doesn't discourage us. No mind state sends us down into the uh, uh, blackness of hell. And we also, because of that resolution and because of the growing sensitivity, have a corresponding heartfelt touch with others, other beings, other life expressions of life. And through that, we develop an ethical bonding with life, not from a pretentious moral statement of how I should be, wagging our fingers backward like most of us did in church school, holding ourselves fast to some vow and rigors of conduct for the fear of God, but rather because we see that this is how how we can approach life in the best orientation, in the proper stance, how we can get as close to life through our ethical orientation to it. And so um, we begin to take on ethical conduct as, as the very motion and basis of our practice itself. It's not an add-on. It just comes out of us. It's almost like, to use a rather gross example, sweat out of the, uh, out of the skin. It just comes out of us. It just starts being emitted like that. And we also see and read into the refrain of taking the, of the five precepts that this is, we're undertaking a training. So there's going to be a lot of slippage, a lot of mistakes, full of mistakes. In fact, the right orientation to practice is that we're mistake prone. I say often, or I have said before, that how we progress in this path is we take a step and then we fall flat on our face. We get back up, we take another step and fall flat on our face. And we progress at the rate of one step and one body length. (laughs) So I undertake the training. I undertake the training. So that when I make a mistake, it's okay. It's not a, it's not, this isn't, it's not a scolding I give myself. I just look at where I have allowed the grossness, the old conditioned grossness of my relationship to life to hold me distant and to um, hold me in a kind of way that is in a very selfish orientation to things. And a very, uh, strong embodied sense of I, me, and mine, and therefore a loss of interconnectedness. And so when I undertake the training, these precepts are often like training wheels for us when I begin. And so when they touch the ground, I know that I've lost the view which holds the sensitivity and response of love. I know that. And we have to ask the deepest question for us from ourselves. What is my intention for living? Is it to grasp and obtain and acquire? Or is it to have a relationship with life that is loving? Because based upon that answer to that equation, we will either continue to violate the precepts or come back in line through the training wheels. 
because it's very obvious that the way life expresses itself, when it is being met in a particular connected view, is ethical. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't try to create more pain from my uh, more pain onto any being. And it doesn't try to create any more pain for oneself. And because of that, uh, because we know what it feels like to have pain. But more importantly, it just doesn't make sense. Now, many of us here in this room are to the point in our practice where we just don't feel like creating any more pain in life. Look into your heart. You don't want to hurt people. It doesn't mean you don't from time to time in some explosion or outrage. But the intention for your life is usually not aimed in some kind of manipulative way upon life. Huh? That's the first indication. It's the first watermark that the training wheels are about ready to come off. And that we're able to ride this thing. And that the sensitivity has touched us to such a degree that there's no turning back. That we're well on our way here. And we don't give ourselves credit, and I want to give all of us credit here. We don't give ourselves credit for these watermarks. No, I don't really want to hurt anybody. I want to stay in this view of connection. I want to see life not from the multiplicity of things, but from the heart, from the unity of heart. Now, the precepts do many things along that line, but you can already hear that within that initial training wheel start is the ability to begin to steady our minds because we're not constantly trying to bring forth a new strategy for manipulation. There's a settledness in ourself. We're just being harmoniously with things. And when there isn't that unsettledness, the mind slows down and becomes more stable. And when the mind becomes more stable, we see things not through the distortion of of the manipulation, but from the clarity of the awareness and love. So we're beginning to see that ethical conduct It's impossible to move very far at all in this practice without an ethical life. And when we understand that, we start really looking at our intention, at our motivation for doing the things we do. Because we know we're just going to complicate everyone. And we're certainly going to skew our hearts away from our deepest intention. And we're not willing to do that anymore. How much time have we got left? The other things, let me just go through some of the other benefits of sila or ethical conduct. The young child goes to the Buddha and the Buddha says, I teach ethical living. 
Well, so that's good. I have heard the Ten Commandments and thou shalt... No, no, you don't understand. It's the very way that you pick up a cup of coffee. It's the very way that you say hello to your neighbor. It's the embedded confidence and stability of love. And the other uh, fact that we begin to understand uh, as we take on a more ethical life is that um, we don't let the past defeat us anymore. We have a, many of us, all of us probably in this room, could stand up and confess, much like Alcoholics Anonymous, that we are guilt-ridden and shameful for a variety of situations and circumstances in our life. I'm sure that we are all full of the personal outrage with what th- of things we have done or have things been done to us. And if you notice, it keeps the mind very agitated. Because as soon as it gets quiet, up comes this memory of what we have done to someone or someone has done to us. When we feel the contraction of spirit and the anger arises, and where's our samadhi? Where's our wisdom in that moment? And we're embroiled in the history of our life. In order to move into a deeper level of ethical conduct, we have to give, let the past be. Let the past go. Let it be gone. That requires for most of us some extra work in terms of forgiveness. Sometimes therapeutically, sometimes just working very effectively with those points, those incidences, which we've talked about before and I would be happy to talk about again, but I don't have time tonight. Allow the past to die. That's the Dharma way. Not to carry it forth and to keep bringing and tying, it's like a noose around her neck to some knot in time 20 years ago when I did such and such, which will never let us breathe fully and won't let us move effortlessly. We're always within some kind of relationship with the grief that we still hold to what we did. We have to move through this. We have to let the... And therapy is an excellent way to clean up those issues. But they have to be cleaned up in all of us. What happens when they're cleaned up is that we start facing straight ahead. Not futuristically, but presently. In present moment terms. And it's only within the present moment that there is wisdom in samadhi. Only here. Only here. And our past begins to die when we see it can no longer define the present. We're not going to bring it along. This is what confessionals are supposed to do. And they do a kind of poor job because they tie you to the confessionals. Fesser. No, I'm the confessor. The confe- whatever. <laughs> they tie you to the priest. So, how does ethical conduct work to open us up to clear seeing? Well, another, when we get to the saying the precepts, you'll, 
you'll hear that we are to pause, refrain from, refrain from hurting, refrain from stealing. That refraining is a space and time. It's a gap. It's a pause. It allows us to see what we're about ready to bring forward in consciousness through this action. And that pause allows the motivation for what's behind the action to be seen. In that pause, there is clarity. Acting out of the motivation is an unconscious reaction in, in, in ignorance and not ethical conduct. So this pause is extremely important. This pause saves our life in numerous ways. Just to be able to take a, a moment and consider your options other than the knee-jerk response to retaliate. And then in that pause, something quite miraculous happens, really, if we're willing to give it a pause, and that is we see or feel the awareness rising up within that pause. And the awareness itself connects us to the object or person in a different way than the unconscious motivation would have connected or disconnected us to that person. Sometimes um, I speak with mothers and they may be having a problem with a troubled, difficult child, say a young child. One mother was telling me that uh, she would walk into her living room and the child uh, just you know, scattered the blocks everywhere and she wanted them to be neat. But we're talking about a five-year-old kid, so the child doesn't have the sense of neatness that the mother has. But the mother was very demanding in requiring that child to have that sense of neatness. So I said, well, instead of losing yourself and going around and around and around and just developing a real... Um, tumultuous relationship that will just grow in difficulty over time. This thing will just keep going. When you walk into the room, pause. And instead of acting from the anger of what the child isn't doing, move, let pause sufficiently long enough until the maternal love arises because it's stronger than the anger, which is a secondary response and probably coming from the sense that the maternal love has been violated because they haven't been doing what I really care about, which is a clean house. So you just pause and you let the maternal love realign itself in proper relationship and then act or respond from that maternal love rather than from the anger. Just try it. It's only the hardest thing we would ever do (laughs) because of that impulse, that enormous impulse of mind, righteous impulse, that the house needs to be clean first and foremost and the child's connectedness is secondary. Isn't that amazing when you think about, when you look at what we're really doing to ourselves and to other people, the priorities that we have set, that the clean house is one and love for the child is number two. And the pause allows that, gives it a possibility to resurface. 
But without the pause, we're just acting on old steam. And it never solves anything. In fact, many of us, almost all of us, in fact, have encased the energy field of our parents. If you look at it, you often can't see it in yourself, but you can in your siblings. You can see that your siblings (laughs) are acting very much like your parents. And they might not even like their parents, the parents. But they act from it anyway. Because we've encased it. And the actions are very similar. And we've just, that's karma. That's just the perpetuation of a lineage. God knows where it began. But let it die with us. Let it die with us. It's not the lineage that you want to perpetuate. And then Sila, we're just going to keep on working here at other revelations from Sila, is it allows a light, harmonious mind. When we're ethical, um, it feels good. It fosters relaxation. We're not tight or tense or paranoid. We're not looking over our shoulder to see if the lie has been discovered. It's amazing, you know, my life here in town is really not very dramatic. As a matter of fact, it has no drama. I'm actually amazed. It doesn't like, there's no... There's nobody who's going to call my wife and say she's, they've been having an affair with me. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it's very not, it's not dramatic in that way. And, <laughs> and it, it gets so that I love it. Often we stir things up, we stir the pot to get a little excitement going in our life, don't we? And to get our mind kind of, you know, sort of hopping, like on hot plate. Well, if you look at what that does to your practice or to your heart, it ruptures it. And it's the harmonious life. It's the ethical life on which the continuity of our attention and the wisdom from that continuity can be served. Not from drama. And so it ends a kind of defensiveness and self-justification. This rationalization we're always doing because we have been leading an inward lie. And this culture, may I say, as most of you know, loves to distort itself. Collectively be dishonest. So we look to our leadership. You can't find honesty in our leadership. Look to our priests. You can't find honesty there either. Who do we look for in this? Who do we look to? To ourself. We know. Each of us knows. Each of us has a plumb line of honesty. Each of us knows inwardly what is going on. It has this immediate and life-saving, spiritually life-saving knowledge of what we're doing. Whether we're tuned sufficiently to follow it or not, I don't know. But if we don't, it will have implications for our practice far beyond that the immediate right or wrong within that situation.
And, I mean, as I was just looking at the number and lists of what ethical conduct does for us, it just became overwhelming in terms of why the Buddha would say that, why the Buddha would lead with ethics. And so the next one was that, you know, it lets the past be seen as the past. It ends the story of a certain configuration or attitude we might be holding. Themes are discontinued. The themes of dishonesty, the themes of manipulation, the themes of of distortion, they just stop. Once you know that this is the life you want to live, we want to live, then there's a kind of confidence that comes in where we stand. We don't mistrust where we're standing to think we should be five feet back out of harm's way. It's where we stand. This is our rightful place on earth. This is it. And we offer no compromise from where we stand. And if we're accused of something and we know we didn't do it, or at least it wasn't our intention to hurt, we own the responsibility right where we stand. We don't excuse it. Or we say, no, I didn't do it. Well, you're going to jail. Okay, if you have to send me to jail. I still didn't do it. Twenty years later, you come out. Nothing's changed. You're still on the same spot on the earth. Nothing's changed. You're going to the Iraq war. I have a friend who is a meditator and he's been sent off once and and then he came back and went AWOL and they caught him and they uh, lowered his rank and then they were going to send him back to Iraq again. He said, no, I'm not going to go. They said, well, we'll put you in the brig. Well, then you have to put me in the brig because I'm not going to go. So instead of doing that, they just gave him a dishonorable discharge. But he wasn't going to go. And it, well, he wasn't a hostile, he's not a hostile young man. He's just resolved that he's not going to do that anymore. And he would take whatever punishment they offer him, but he's not going to move from that. And he's a very loving person, and it's not as if he is doing this from some kind of, you know, um, righteous stance, he's doing it really from the sense of the know of love. From the know of love. Just not going to do this. So it starts, we start to being able to also explore our states of mind. When we have a state of mind like anger, and anger has always meant that we would lose our ground and we would lose our way and we'd start throwing things and just be um, almost uh, lost for a period of time. Then when anger arose in our practice, we, got, we had the fear of having lost that ground. And, but with sila, we understand that the first thing we need to do is to connect with the anger, to have a relationship with the anger rather than to act the anger out and have no relationship with it. When we act it out, we have no relationship with it. Instead of doing that, we have develop a relationship with it. And it's an honest relationship. It's one of wanting to see it. Notice stability of mind and wisdom coming in. So we look at this anger, knowing that we no longer want to hurt someone, and it allows the complete range of mind states to be seen. 
Whereas if we have been caught up in manipulative response, when that manipulative mind state, we don't trust it because we don't trust ourselves in being able to hold to the seal of response, the ethical response. So it allows a complete opening and embracing of whatever state of mind arises for exploration. No fear. Because it's clear that whatever arises isn't going to create some kind of traumatic end for someone else or myself. I'm going to explore it. I'm going to understand it, not act from it. Are we beginning to feel the power of this thing? See, when the child came and the Buddha said, I teach Sila, he wasn't saying be a good kid. Or maybe he would give that message to a child that didn't understand anything else. But that's not the message that he was giving, giving the vast, the people, the vast disciples of his. He says, if you want a free mind, we must face ourselves in alignment with the view that we see that freedom from, the view of interconnectedness. And use sila as like the um, electric fence that a cow knows to, that it's when it's, it touches the electric fence and it gets shocked, it says, oh, I've come too close here. I'm, I've lost my way. And uh, get back and pause and reframe this thing, look at it, and then move forward from there. Finally, what Sila does, not finally, but my final point this evening, is that it helps us understand emptiness. The less dramatic our life is, the less we rub up against each other in some kind of irritated way, the less the sense of me owns its own selfishness and its own resistance to life. The less... I personify myself, the less I manifest the egoic sense of me, the more humble, natural humility, not arrogant humility, but natural humility, there is. And the more this thing becomes permeable rather than three-dimensional, the more spacious, the more transparent we become and can see. We cannot see anatta from rage, from passion, but from simplicity, from that first touch of mindfulness where it opened our doors, our inward light to shine on the true way, the true direction. And so some sila or ethical conduct feeds stability of mind. And when the child came the second time, the Buddha said, I teach samadhi. I teach stability of mind. I teach oneness of mind. 
interconnectedness of mind. Because if we look at what disconnects us mentally, it's our thinking. And what does our thinking get charged from? But our emotional reaction to things. Or our dishonesty to things. We get embroiled in thought far away from that emotional and mental stability that we need as a way to be actually perceive what's occurring. We can't perceive what's occurring when the light of our attention is moving in paranoid ways. We see it from the sense of stability and simplicity. It's right before us. And so you might say the very posture of samadhi is a posture of ethical conduct of just non-dramatic living, of simplicity of heart. And this enormous power comes from that stability that can't be shaken because it's not shakable and will turn towards everything that tries to shake it and provide a platform of stability for that very incursion into itself. Looks at anger, fear, and it has this open stance of embrace towards all things. That's a different power of mind than the power of concentration, of intense focus, Intense focus often captures our imagination and our sense of personal power, egoic power, because it's like this laser beam. And it actually, like a magnifying glass, has this enormous power to go through to the minuscule, the molecular qualities and states to see very subtly and to use those for egoic accomplishment. But that's very different than what we're talking about when we're talking about samadhi, which is stability of mind, mental harmony, which is clearly comprehensive. You see, when the Buddha talked about mindfulness, he didn't just say sati, which is the Pali word for mindfulness. He said sati sampajana. Sati, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. Sati, sampajana. And he, when he said sati, slash sampajana was the next. So it wasn't just, and we have taken this to mean mind, minuscule, moment-to-moment focused attention at the exclusion of all things. But rather samadhi is the inclusion of all things. And a mind that rests and the harmony and connectedness within that inclusivity. We've misread the tea leaves for the most part in this tradition. And that steadiness of mind, so this is where wisdom starts to move. The steadiness of mind, when it's not moving, not when it moves in thought, it makes something out of something. When I look at this thing and I think about a lamp, my mind starts moving with the thought of lamp and how lamps have served me and this is a nice lamp or not a nice lamp and 
I wish it had a three-way bulb, and it just keeps moving out. And I keep moving with those different expressions of thought as it just keeps panning out, don't I? But a non-moving mind doesn't get lost in that those waves. It sees it for what it is. It knows how to turn it on and turn it off. It doesn't get lost so much in the pleasure or pain of it being a better or worse lamp than I have known it to be. It doesn't move in the same way. And therefore, it begins to perceive it from a place of stillness rather than from a place of how I can get more advantage from it. When that occurs, it becomes permeable. Inward experiences, states of mind become translucent, become like Swiss cheese that don't hold the destination and irreversible properties that we give them. They become fluid. And wisdom is that sense of seeing from stability. Samadhi, ethical conduct. And so we come back to the start. And we begin to see that a consciousness that is stable and non-moving, that is not making dramatic and sudden movements or reactivity from anything, inherently is stable. A stable consciousness, because it's not being manipulated through mind states, and the egoic sense of wanting and not wanting and how to achieve honorably or dishonorably that wanting or not wanting derives a path through life that doesn't perturb it, which is ethical living. Rumi said, live in the nowhere you come from even though you have an address here. The embodiment of the sense of ego is the absence of wisdom because the mind is moving in relationship to itself and its own needs. And those needs are around procurement for itself. And so there has to be a rift between what it wants and equal shares for all. That's called the United States. And we have the military might to make sure that might happen. And we don't have the ethical base to even know where the rage comes from. But in this room, we can instill it. I don't have a lot of hope for all but I have a lot of hope for you. And we can hold that and we can move it now in a reliable and consistent way towards the betterment of all beings. And when we're operating from our own sense of self-fulfillment, 
We are far away from ethical life. It's an idea that sounds good, not the very way that we live and move through life itself. And it's not like terribly... You might not even recognize an ethical person. It's not like they do things that are so mysterious. They like don't create a lot of waves. And so they're almost unnoticed. And so through that simplicity and willingness to be unnoticed that we make our way. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.